how do you get ready for some great challenge? Could be a conflict or a surgery or an undertaking that is very dangerous. As some of you moms might know, this is how Tim Keller begins his devotional on Psalm 20. Psalm 20 is a psalm of preparation for battle, a psalm of preparation for military conflict. We learn that from verse 7. God's people in Psalm 20 and God's king are seeking the favor of the Lord before they go out into military conquest. But Keller's question is an important one for the Christian life. Every single one of us will face the day of trouble. Some of you might be facing it today. Sure, none of us are facing military invasion like Israel was thousands of years ago. But all of us have to face the day of trouble, which is how verse 1 puts it, nonetheless. And so the question becomes, how do we prepare ourselves for the day of trouble? Israel's practice, which is reflected here in Psalm 20, is to take the matter to the Lord in prayer and in renewed trust that their God would fight their battles. The title of this morning's sermon is Preparing for the Day of Trouble. Preparing for the Day of Trouble. It's interesting that rather than responding to the day of trouble, Israel thought it wise to prepare for it to enter into the conflict that they knew was inevitable with God's blessing and God's favor, preparing their hearts before him. Now, I want to approach this morning's sermon a little bit differently than we normally do. I want to begin by just explaining Psalm 20 to us, kind of going through it and explaining it in its historical context. Because as you're going to see, it's a little bit of a confusing psalm in certain ways to understand. And then after explaining the psalm in its context, I hope to offer us a few points of application at the end. Because once I explain the psalm, some some of us are going to be scratching our heads and going, how does that relate to me? What, What does God have to say to us today as Christians, as followers of Jesus? And so I hope to make a few answers to that very plain for us. I want to begin today by noting That Psalm 20 and Psalm 21, which are related psalms, are unique in the Psalter. James Montgomery Boyce, the late pastor of 10th Presbyterian in Philadelphia, writes this. He says, the 20th and 21st Psalms are different from the Psalms that we have studied thus far, in that they were designed to be sung by the Jewish people on behalf of their king and nation. The first, Psalm 20, is a prayer for the king's victory in the day of battle. The second is a prayer of thanksgiving for that deliverance, end quote. So Psalm 20, again, is a prayer on behalf of the people for their king and for their nation that they would have victory in a military battle. And next week, we're going to be looking at basically a celebration song, a psalm of thanksgiving in response to God answering their prayer found here in Psalm chapter 20. In addition to this, this psalm seems to be more liturgical than many others. Psalm 20 begins with the first person plural, which is translated we, first person plural, rather than the first person singular, which would be I or me. We see in verse 5, this first person plural, when the psalm says, 
we shout in verse 5, and we see it again in verse 9 when it says, we call. And so it seems that many people are involved in the worship of Psalm 20. It's a we statement. It's not somebody speaking isolated. Notice also that the first person plural is interrupted in the middle of this psalm. In verse 6, all of a sudden we see first person singular language when the psalm shifts directions and we read, Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. So the psalm begins again with this plural we voice. It's the voice of many in verses 1 through 5. And then it's interrupted in the middle with a singular voice, I. And then it concludes again with that corporate we, the voice of the people speaking in unison. Most commentators take that to suggest that the first and the last part of the psalm were spoken by the congregation and the middle portion by a priest or a prophet or perhaps the king himself. Psalm 20 was likely then a formal liturgy, liturgy which means a formal worship service in Israel to prepare them for a military campaign. With that background, let's kind of walk through this briefly. Let's begin with verses 1 through 5. These verses tell us of the congregation's intercession for the king. The congregation here is speaking to a single individual. The word you is singular throughout verses 1 through 5. And this one individual is revealed to be the king in verse 9. The Lord's anointed in verse 6. And so the congregation here at this part of the liturgy service is speaking to the king and they're asking God's blessing on him. They say to him, may the Lord answer you, protect you, send you help, give you support. Remember all your offerings. I ran out of fingers on one hand. Regard with favor your sacrifices. Grant your heart's desire. Fulfill all your plans and fulfill all your petitions. So they are speaking this over their king. And they are asking for God's blessing and God's success to follow their king into battle. Now here's another unique aspect of this psalm. Most psalms that we've studied so far are prayers essentially and they're directed toward God. So the psalmist is speaking directly to God. Uh, even last week, right at the end of Psalm 19, it was, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. That was the end of Psalm 19. It was a direct prayer to the Lord. But this psalm is unique because these verses that we just read are actually not spoken directly to the Lord. They're spoken directly to the king himself. And because these verses are not directed to God as a prayer, but instead are directed to the king, it might seem strange that I'm calling this intercession on the king's behalf. What is intercession? Well, intercession is prayer to God on behalf of another person. It's when you intercede for them, you go to bat or you go to battle for somebody else and you say, man, I'm going to take their needs and their struggles before the Lord in my own prayer time. That's what intercession is. But the reason why this is intercession is because these are requests that the congregation is indirectly making to the Lord 
on behalf of the king, and thus they reflect their prayers for the king. We're getting an insight into what they are asking in their own prayers for the Lord. They're saying, may the Lord answer you. May the Lord protect you. This is their prayers for the king. It's similar to that famous priestly blessing that you find in Numbers chapter 6. Moses told Aaron that Aaron and all the priests should speak this pronouncement over the people. This is Numbers 6, 24 through 26, where they basically say, may the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. In that priestly blessing, they're speaking directly to the people. But make no mistake about it, they are urging God to do these wonderful things for the people of Israel. In short, in this first section, the congregation is praying to God for the success of their king. Let's look at the specifics of their prayers and then we'll move on. In verse 1, they want God to answer the king's prayers. So simply put, they're saying, God, whatever the king is asking for, can you give that to him? Would you answer his prayers? I want friends like that. Lord, whatever Daniel's asking for, just give it to him. Bless him, Lord. Answer his prayers. Verse 2, they want the God of Jacob to protect their king in battle. They're saying, God, would you protect him? Now, God of Jacob here is short for the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. The God who revealed himself to Israel at the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3. When God spoke to Moses from that bush, he revealed himself as the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And that is the God that Israel is calling on here in Psalm chapter 20. Also in verse 2, we see that they want God to send the king help from the sanctuary and to give him support from Zion. In other words, what they're saying is when we leave this worship service and we walk out of the temple or we walk out of Mount Zion to go to battle, would you go with us? Would your presence follow us onto the battlefield? Because if you're not there, we're not winning. So would you please go with us? In verse 3, they want God to remember the king's offerings and to regard with favor his burnt sacrifices. Now, this is speaking of pre-battle sacrifices that the people would have offered to the Lord. The king, as the people's representative and military leader, has sought forgiveness from God and thus secured God's favor by expressing faith in him. We see examples of this in the Old Testament. One famous example comes from King Saul in 1 Samuel chapter 13. The only issue there is that King Saul offered these pre-battle sacrifices wrongly and experienced God's displeasure. Uh, there was a large Philistine army that had come against Israel in 1 Samuel chapter 13. And they were grossly outnumbered and the people were rightfully terrified. And Saul is waiting for Samuel the prophet to come and to offer these sacrifices before they would go and march in battle. And Saul gets impatient because the people are scared and they start to leave and they're fleeing from the battlefield and Saul's kind of panicking and he ends up taking matters into his own hands. Here's how the story goes in 1 Samuel 13. Starting in verse 8, we read, 
he, speaking of Saul, waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. As soon, I love this, as soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering. So the second the offering is offered, right when it happens, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him and greet him. Samuel said, what have you done? I wonder if the hair stood up on Saul's neck. I wonder if all of a sudden terror struck him when this great, famous man of God, Samuel, shows up and Saul was trying to play it cool. He's trying to greet him all nicely. And hey, brother, great to see you. What have you done? I don't know. What have I done? Saul said, well, when I saw that the people were scattering from me and that you did not come within the days appointed and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. So essentially, he's doing what all of us do when we sin. He's passing the buck. Well, Samuel, I had to do this. I had to force myself to do it because you blew it. You didn't show up in time. You missed the assignment. So I had to step in and Samuel's not buying any of this. He says to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, David, the author of Psalm 20. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Game over for Saul's dynasty after that. You can kind of understand now the prayer here of God's people over their king David in verse 3, they're saying, Lord, would you regard our king's sacrifices? Would you, would you let these sacrifices be received favorably by you? Because we don't want a, re a repeat of what happened with Saul. So that's what they're asking. Fifth, they want God to make the king's battle plan successful in verse 4. This reminds us that it was the king's responsibility as the commander-in-chief to draw up the battle plan. And yet Israel was wise enough to know that even if they had a great military leader like David, who knew how to rout the enemies, he knew battle strategy. They knew that if the Lord does not bless his plan, we're going to fail. Proverbs 16, 9 reminds us the heart of man, of, a, of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. The Psalms also tell us that unless the Lord builds the house, those who labor, labor in vain. And so the people of God say to their Lord, would you bless our plans? Yeah, we're trying to be wise. We think we're in the right here, but we're asking for you to bless our plans and to establish our steps. Finally, in verse five, they want God to give them a joyful outcome as the Lord delivers their king and fulfills his petitions. Now notice this, that the king's deliverance and the king's salvation or victory is their victory, thus their joy. So in other words, as God answers his petitions, as God gives David success, as God gives David victory, their victory is secured 
in him. Well, second, let's move on in this passage and look at verses six through eight, because now we're going to see the prophet or the priest or the king's reply. So picture the scene here. The proper sacrifices were made, presumably by the priest, not the king. Sacrifices were made. The congregation has now spoken these words over the king, asking God's blessing on him. And now in verse six, this singular voice comes out in this worship service and says, now I know. Now we're not sure if the reply here is only verse six or it's verse six, seven, and eight. I'm personally inclined to think that this singular response is all three verses, that that is the response that this person makes at this point in the liturgy. We also have no idea whose voice this is. Some scholars think that this might be a prophet, much like Samuel, who I just referenced earlier. Others think that it might be the response of the priest who is now maybe hearing a word from the Lord and is saying, now we know that the Lord is going to give us victory, essentially. Other commentators think that this is possibly the response of the king himself. I tend to lean that way. In fact, uh, David is authoring this, so he's the one pinning these words from his own hand. But either way, a representative of the Lord, possibly David himself, is now responding in this public worship service. And his response is an expression of confidence that the Lord is going to give him, the king, and thus Israel, victory in the battle. This yes or this answer comes from his holy heaven we see in this passage, which reminds us that the Jews always knew that the earthly temple pointed to a heavenly reality. Their salvation was coming from the throne room in heaven where God himself dwelt. Now, verse seven is the best known verse in this psalm. It says, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. That's an awesome verse, huh? That's like a battle verse that you want to like declare. They're saying some people trust, and by some people they mean, hey, all of our enemies out there, all these surrounding nations, they trust in chariots, they trust in horses, but not us. And it would be smart to trust in chariots. Chariots were the apex of military technology at this time. These were like the F-22 Raptors. I got that from Justin because he's in the Air Force. I said, is like the F-22, is that like the apex of military technology? And he said, from an Air Force standpoint, yes. So if you're like a Navy guy or something out there, let's not argue about this. But he said, if you really want to look like you know what you're talking about, throw Raptor in at the end of that. This is the F-22 Raptor of the ancient world. The chariot. If you had chariots, you were strong, you were powerful, and your enemies would be terrified. And so these enemies trusted in their technology, in their military might, in their chariots and in their horses and in their massive numbers, but that's not Israel. Israel did not do that, and how could they? When you read about the military history of ancient Israel, it seems that they were always facing uh, grossly outnumbered odds. The favor was not with them from a human standpoint. It was always a larger and superior military force facing Israel. Uh, think about 
the exodus out of Egypt, Moses comes in and he takes a bunch of slaves who are in slavery in Egypt, which is the, the dominant regional power at that point. And they're totally outnumbered. They have no chance of rising up and rebelling against Egypt. But God sends, of course, the 10 plagues. God's intervening. It's God's outstretched arm. And he decimates them with these 10 plagues. And then they get released from Egypt and they start heading toward the promised land. And then they find themselves against the Red Sea. And now their option is turn and fight because the Egyptians with their chariots are coming and pursuing them. And God's like, I can't let you fight because you're not going to win. So, hey, watch for the salvation of the Lord. And Moses raises up that staff famously at the Red Sea and God parts the Red Sea and threw it on dry ground. He delivers his people and then he smashes the chariots of the Egyptians in the Red Sea. God had to fight their battle. Or think of Gideon with the 300. Gideon didn't start out with 300. He started out with 10,000 troops, which would have given them much more confidence, even though with only 10,000, they were massively outnumbered by the Midianites. But God's like, you know what? Even if I give you victory with 10,000, you might take some credit for this. So let's strip things back here. And he dwindles their forces down to just 300 people. And then God thinks to himself, if I even with 300 let you go out on the battlefield and slash these guys to pieces, you might boast in yourself. So here's the battle plan, Gideon. In the middle of the night, sneak in there and light torches inside pots and then shatter them and then shout. And when you do that, I'm going to rout the Midianites. And it works. Do you think that those guys went back to their forward operating base after that battle and were like, guys, we're awesome. Look how strong we are. No. The song on their lips was, look at what the Lord has done for us. Our God fights our battles for us. And we could talk about Jericho and we could talk over and over and over again about how Israel was never responsible for their victory. The Lord, the God of Israel was responsible for their victory. And so once again, they say here, some people trust in chariots. Some people trust in horses. But we, the people of God, we trust in the Lord our God. Because Israel trusts in their God, as evidenced by their obedient sacrifices and their hearty prayers, they are confident now of the outcome of the battle. Look at verse 8. The king says, They collapse and fall, but we rise and stand upright. Old Testament commentator Peter Craigie writes, The enemy now standing in their arrogance and might would bow down and fall, whereas the king and his people now bowed down in the worship of God would ultimately stand upright in victory. I love that. They are, they're mighty and they're arrogant right now, but they're, they're going to be the ones that are bowing down at the end of the day. And we who are bowed down lowly and humble right now will be exalted by the Lord. And so this brings us to verse 9 and the end of this beautiful psalm. And this is the congregation's closing prayer for their king. O Lord, save the king. May he answer us when we call. To this day in countries that have a monarchy, the expression at a coronation or sometimes in the day of a battle is God save the queen or God save the king. That's, that's where this is coming from. 
Israel is saying in conclusion here to this worship service, God save the king and hear our prayers when we call. And so at this moment, the worship service ends and the people of God follow their king out into battle. Now we should not imagine this as some sort of a celebratory worship service. The battle still needed to be fought. And although they felt confident of the outcome, they still had to go out there and strap up and go to war. And of course, there was always the possibility that they're getting it wrong and that God's going to let them be defeated at the hands of this greater military foe. And so we shouldn't think of this as just this fun, excited, celebratory service where Israel's clapping their hands and shouting for joy and everything's awesome. No, this is actually a very somber and solemn service. It's on the eve of a major battle. So the people of God are nervous and concerned. Next week is the celebration service. Next week is in Psalm 21, where they are celebrating the victory. That, that's the party chapter. This is the parting chapter, headed out to battle. This is a somber moment. Women and children kissing their husbands as they march out to war. So that's what's going on in Psalm 20. Now we might go, cool, this is awesome. This is an interesting piece of military history. But what does it have to do with me? What does it have to do with us as Christians? Like we're not fighting people we shouldn't be, right? We're not, we're not going out and fighting non-Christians in Goleta right now. So what does this have to do with us? Well, I'm glad you didn't ask because I'm just going to answer this for you. But I'm going to give three closing applications for us this morning that I think are very obvious from the text, actually. The first one is this. It's actually a question for each of us. Where do we turn in times of distress? This gets back to Tim Keller's question in the introduction. Yeah, sure, we're not going to battle tomorrow. But this is an important question that we have to answer over and over in our, in our lives. When we face the day of distress, which could be that terrible news from a doctor. It could be the loss of a loved one. It could be the news of a pandemic breaking out. It could be the news of war. It could be the news from a boss that the company is closing and we have to let you go. Where do we turn in those moments? Who do we look to? Oftentimes our first response and tragically sometimes our only response is to immediately look to human solutions. It's to put our hope in earthly solutions. Our strong nation, our money, our family, our doctors, our technology, perhaps even our own ingenuity. Hey, I can figure this out. I got this. I can handle this. I can manage. We look to human resources. This is not the way of the people of God. Now, this does not mean that we just sit back and throw up our hands and say, Lord, I'm not going to do anything. Like Israel still went out and fought the battle, right? So they did rely on, in a sense, some human resources, and so do we. But that was not what their hope was founded in. That's what verse 7 was making so clear to us. That they were saying, listen, our trust, our hope is actually in the Lord our God. And so they went to him first in prayer. And they went to him and brought their whole selves and their whole life to him in renewed trust and said, Lord, 
I'm entrusting my future and I'm entrusting this situation to you. And we're going to seek your face in this. This is the response of the people of God. When the day of distress faces us, we go to the Lord and we go to him in prayer and we express our trust in him. Number two, I think this psalm highlights for us the importance of intercessory prayer. Here in Psalm 20, the people are joining in the prayers of their king. Okay, in verse one, they say, may the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. In verse four, they say, may he grant you your heart's desire and fulfill all your plans. And then in verse five, they say, may the Lord fulfill all your petitions. This is textbook intercessory prayer. The king has a need, okay? The king was not like the president. The president is our commander in chief, but guess what? He doesn't carry a rifle, okay? He gets to sit in the Oval Office or he gets to sit in Camp David and he gets to call the shots and the troops go marching. That's not how the leaders operated in the ancient world. If your king did that, your king was a sissy. And you would kick your king out and he was not worthy to lead the nation. So a king actually had to go and lead the charge. Thus, throughout the ancient world, they would always look for somebody like Saul. Remember, Saul was head and shoulders above the rest, not shampoo, but height and stature. And they said, we want that guy. That guy can fight battles for us. We'll follow him. And so the king actually had to go and fight these battles. So David is like, hey, I, I'm, I'm praying for victory and success. And the people are joining David in these prayers for his safety and for his deliverance. That's textbook intercessory prayer. So three quick thoughts here about intercessory prayer. Number one, if you are facing a day of distress, humble yourself and include other brothers and sisters in your prayers. Send that text message. Call your pastors. Reach out to your community group. Hey, I've got this thing that's happening or this thing that's coming up. Would you join? Would you pray for me, with me? The king here has the entire congregation praying for him. He's not too big for that. He's not too proud for that. He humbles himself. Guys, I, would you come together? Can we worship? Can we pray together? And oftentimes it is in our pride that we don't want to include other people. And oftentimes intercessory prayer is sort of a last ditch effort, right? We can manage, hey, I'm going to pray about this. I don't want to talk about this to other people. Let me get all the news from the doctors before I open this up to my community group. Oh, I don't want to bother pastors with this. Are you kidding? This is what we're here for. In the book of James, in a context about physical healing, we learn that the fervent and effective prayers of the righteous avail much. So if you're facing a day of distress, learn from this psalm. Seek intercession from other people. Include others in your prayers. Also, if you're interceding for someone else, I would say this. Let that person know you're praying for them. David, in verse 6, has this boost of confidence that God hears his prayers after he hears the prayers of the congregation on his behalf. In other words, his confidence begins to soar when he realizes, man, I'm not in this alone. All of the people are praying for me. And there's something very encouraging about hearing that other people are praying for you. 
And so if you are praying for somebody else, if you hear about something going on with somebody else, it's great to pray for them. But it's even better to say, hey, I want you to know that I'm praying for you. Send them that text. Or even best, if you have opportunity, don't just say, hey, I'm praying for you, bro. Hey, can I pray with you right now? One of my favorite things to see when we gather on Sundays or when we gather in our monthly prayer meeting is to see people in the congregation, this usually happens after service, praying for other people. I love to see that. And as you have opportunity, pray for somebody else. That encourages people in their faith. Finally, notice how intercessory prayer creates solidarity with a brother or sister who's in distress. Throughout this prayer, you notice that the people are not just praying for David. They're not even just praying with David. Ultimately, their prayers become intertwined with David's. There's this solidarity that takes place. And one of the greatest ways to produce solidarity among the church family is through intercessory prayer, where all of a sudden we're entering into somebody else's suffering. We're empathizing with them. We're bearing their burdens in love. And so there's a solidarity that's produced as we practice intercession for one another. So I think this psalm highlights the importance of intercessory prayer. And may we be a church that constantly prays for one another and constantly prays for other people, even as we did this morning. Finally, and my favorite point of all, is that their victory comes from the king's victory. Their victory comes from the king's victory. The king represents the people. The king leads the people. And so what we see in Psalm 20 is that all of their hopes are located in David. If he wins, they win. If he loses, they lose. Of course, our king is not David, but our king is the true Messiah which is what the anointed one of verse six means. Our king is the true Messiah, Jesus the Christ. And just like their victory came through his victory, just like all of their hopes were wrapped up and embodied in David, so to all of our hopes, all of our victory, all of our success and all of our future happiness and well-being is embodied in the anointed one, the Lord Jesus himself. By faith, the gospel teaches us that we are actually in Christ, that we're united to him. And what that means is that his death 2,000 years ago on the cross is in a very real sense. Your death and my death, this is why we don't have to be judged for our sins anymore. Because by faith, we've been joined to Christ, truly joined to Christ, we are in him, and therefore, when he died and bore that sin, it is literally as if you and I died. His death is our death. But what's more is his righteousness is our righteousness. We are in him. So now, even though you might have already sinned 10 times today, because we ran out of donuts and you got really mad at Jason and Kumon over there, I'm just kidding. I don't even know if we did, but maybe you already sinned this morning. Or maybe you can't detect a sin yet today, but you sinned yesterday. 
you are righteous right now because of Christ's righteousness. His victory, his successes, his righteousness are yours if you're in Christ through faith. So that every single moment of every single day of your life as a Christian, even when you literally fail and you fall into sin, God is looking at you clothed in the righteousness of his son and he is pleased with you. And what's more, his resurrection is our resurrection. Because we are joined to Christ by faith. When we think about that empty tomb, when we celebrate the resurrection together, we're not just celebrating a historical fact. We are celebrating and we are rejoicing in a future reality that we all get to share in, that we too will emerge from our own graves victorious over death. His success is our success. His victory is our victory. And so just as they would shout for joy over David's salvation or deliverance from death in verse 5, so too we shout for joy every single day of our lives over Jesus's victory on the cross and over the grave. That empty tomb is our victory. Sin, Satan, and the grave are defeated. And in Christ, we stand in everlasting victory. And what this means is that in Christ, every single one of us are prepared for the ultimate day of distress. Regardless of what happens in the here and now, when we face that ultimate day of distress, which the Bible points to as a day of judgment for all people, we're prepared. We're prepared. We're ready for that. Our sin is gone. Our Savior is reigning. And we're in him and therefore we belong to him. We're prepared. And so if you've put your faith in the Lord Jesus, you have nothing to fear. You can walk every single day of your life in the confidence of ultimate victory. And next week in Psalm 21, we're going to look at what it looks like to live in celebration of that great news. Let's pray together.